A Man Sent From God. William Brigham. By Gordon Lindsay. Chapter 8. The time was now drawing near when God was to reveal himself to William Brigham in a manner that would not only radically affect his own ministry, but the result of it was to have a profound effect upon the Christian world. It would be a sign that would be spoken against by some, but to other multiplied thousands it would be a cause of praise and thanksgiving to God, and to some it was to provide an inspiration that would cause a hundredfold increase in their ministry. We have already noted a number of things which preceded the visitation of the angel to William Brigham, and there are others that would be of singular interest to record, though time and space permit us to mention but a few of them. Some others are related in the visions recorded in the latter part of this book. However, one incident that occurred was of such an unusual nature, and because mention has been made of it by Brother Brigham on occasions, we shall take note of it at this time. It is a notable fact in the biblical narrative that while ecclesiastical leaders have been notoriously slow to recognize those who have been specially commissioned of God, demons oddly enough have often given this recognition without delay. The first miracle involved in the ministry of Christ, as recorded in the book of Mark, concerns an odd testimony, coming as it does from an evil spirit. Jesus had returned to the city of Nazareth to preach the gospel to those of his hometown. The people of that city, however, far from recognizing the identity of the remarkable person who was in their midst, strongly resented his apparent change of vocation from a carpenter to that of a prophet. But the recognition that they withheld, was quickly acknowledged by the demon that possessed the man who was in their synagogue, and who cried out in the presence of Christ, I know thee who thou art, thou holy one of God. Similarly, the legion of demons in the maniac of Gadara, as he drew near, cried with a loud voice, What have I to do with thee? Jesus, thou son of the most high God. Again the apostle Paul, as he began his missionary work in Europe, in the city of Philippi, instead of being accorded a prophet's welcome, was taken by rough hands and thrust into the inner stocks of a prison. But the spirit of divination in a little girl was quick to discern who Paul and Silas were, and it cried out saying, These men are servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. It is not surprising then that the gift which had been destined for the ministry of William Brigham should be recognized by spirits of divination even before he fully understood the purpose of the gift himself. On one occasion as he passed by an astrologist, the woman upon seeing him, motioned him to come over to her, as she wished to speak to him. When he came near she said, Say, do you know that you were born under a sign and have a gift from God? Other experiences of such a nature occurred and disturbed him for a time, but later he understood. As neither Christ nor Paul accepted nor valued the testimony of demons, and rather commanded them to hold their peace, so Brother Brigham, of course, does not endorse in any sense the so-called pseudo-sciences of astrology or fortune-telling of any kind, even though on occasions their testimony confirms the gift of God. The Lord has plenty of ways of substantiating and vindicating the ministries of his servants without depending on the evidence given by demons. And, of course, the scriptures speak strictly against the children of God consulting such sources. Elsewhere we have mentioned that after his conversion, Brother Brigham became a Baptist preacher, was ordained by Dr. O. Davis of Jeffersonville, and entered into an active ministry in that city. At the close of a great tent meeting, he was baptizing a large number of candidates in the Ohio River, amid throngs of people who had gathered on the banks to watch the service. There were about people to be baptized and it was a hot June day. As Brother Brigham was about to baptize the seventeenth person, 
he heard a still small voice which said, Look up. Three times the words were repeated. He looked up and there from the sky appeared a bright star. After a few seconds had passed, the people looked up and many of the people saw the star also. Some fainted and others shouted and still others ran away. Then the star apparently was withdrawn back into the sky. The incident created such an interest that an account of it appeared in the local newspaper. At another time Brother Brigham was in a large city for three nights of services. The first one to be prayed for was a small child, whose feet had been drawn up by polio, causing him to have to walk on his toes. Suddenly it seemed as if a bright light had been turned on him. Wondering at the rudeness of the custodian in turning the spotlight on him, he opened his eyes, and lo, a star of light stood before him. Recalling this incident he says, I dropped the little boy, or either he jumped from my arms. I did not know what happened, for it seemed that every nerve in my body was paralyzed. As he hit the floor his feet became normal, and for the first time in his life he walked naturally off the platform. Other remarkable things happened, and many people gave their hearts to Christ that night. Similar events from time to time occurred in the life of William Brigham. For a season he had failed to obey the call of God to go forward in this ministry of deliverance. Then there came that dark period of his life which we have recorded when he lost his wife and child, and sorrow was added upon sorrow. At last, however, he reached the place where he determined that his life would be wholly surrendered to God, and that he would do whatever God wanted him to do. It was then that the most remarkable visitation of his life occurred, when the angel in person visited him and gave him a solemn commission from the Most High. The story of this climaxing experience will be told in the following chapter by Brother Brigham himself. Chapter 9 the remarkable angelic visit received by Brother Brigham has caused no little wonder among many of the people of God as well as the unsaved. While a few reject the ministry of the supernatural, even as some did in the days of Christ, the overwhelming majority of the people who attend the Brigham meetings are fully convinced of the reality of the angelic visitation. It so happens that God has chosen diverse and sometimes very mysterious ways in which to reveal himself to his servants specially called for some important service. To Moses, deliverer of Israel, he appeared in the burning bush. To the children of Israel he was found in the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Samuel heard him as a voice calling in the night. To Elijah he was the still small voice. To Abraham he appeared in the thepany or in human form, and Paul saw him in his resurrection glory as also did John, the beloved. Perhaps, However, the most usual supernatural visitation in biblical times was by an angelic visitor. Thus angels appeared to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, to Gideon, to David, to the prophets, to Zechariah, to Mary, to the shepherds, to the apostles, and others. In most cases supernatural visitations were not mere visions, but were an actual appearing of an angelic being. Thus the story of the angel's appearance to William Brigham is not without full Bible precedent. Indeed the truth of angelic ministration to mortals is quite in line with the word of God. It has been recognized generally that at least to some extent the gifts of the Spirit have been restored to the Church. But what about the gift of discerning of spirits? Many have assumed that this gift includes only the discerning of evil spirits. Although the gift must certainly involve the detection of evil powers, we must remember that there are more good spirits than bad. What about the angels? In what realm do they minister? The answer is given in Heb. Are they not all ministering spirits? 
sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Though ordinarily we cannot see angels, it is evident from the scriptures that they are in the company of the children of God much of the time. No doubt, if we fully realized that there were heavenly persons in our vicinity who are daily watching our conduct and perhaps our thoughts, it would have a profound effect upon our lives. Yet such must be the case, the angel of the Lord encampeth round them that fear him, and delivereth them. We could cite the great number of scriptures which deal with the earthly ministry of angels, but that is not necessary. The fact is that practically all Bible teachers believe and teach the actuality of such ministry. Why them are not angels seen more often? Evidently we need the operation of this above-mentioned gift to enable our dull human senses to peer beyond the veil and perceive such highly refined beings as angels. Elisha apparently had this gift and we have the record of his prayer in which he requested that his servant's eyes might be opened that he, too, might be able to see the heavenly host of the Lord. And Elijah prayed, and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes, that he might see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Two kings, there are numerous cases on record where people just before their passing from this world, have witnessed attending angels. Apparently from the words of Jesus, it is one of the duties of angelic beings to transport the human spirit, when it leaves its crumbling tenement of clay, into paradise. Luke. It appears that when the grosser human senses fail, the senses of the spirit become quickened and are able to witness things that ordinary mortals cannot. The angel conversed with Brother Brigham during the first visitation for perhaps half an hour. We are coming into Bible days again, and no doubt there will be more such supernatural revelations as time goes on. Concerning such visitations there is one point that is fundamental. An angel of the Lord will never reveal anything but what agrees strictly with the scriptures. Indeed we are enjoined to place the word of God above the revelations of angels, as Satan has been known to appear as an angel of light. But a false spirit is quickly detected by the spiritually minded. Satan is the father of falsehood, a habitual liar, and he cannot long show himself without telling a lie or making statements that twist, distort, deny, take away or add to the scriptures. His first conversation with a member of the human race, Eve, involved his telling an outright lie. However, the results of the angelic visitation to William Brigham have been a steadily rising tide of revival that has sounded out throughout the world, and the end is not yet. We shall now let Brother Brigham tell the story in his own words of how the angel met him, talked to him, and told him things concerning the work that God had called him to do, I must tell you of the angel and the coming of the gift. I shall never forget the time, May, a very beautiful season of the year in Indiana, where I was still working as a game warden. I had come home for lunch, and was just going around the house taking off my gun, when a very dear friend of mine Prod Wiseman, a brother to my piano player in the church, approached me and asked me to go to Madison with him that afternoon. I told him it was impossible as I had to patrol, and while walking around the house under a maple tree, it seemed that the whole top of the tree let loose. It seemed that something came down through that tree like a great rushing wind. They ran to me. My wife came from the house frightened, and asked me what was wrong. Trying to get hold of myself, I sat down and told her that after all these twenty odd years of being conscious of this strange feeling, the time had come when I had to find out what it was all about. The crisis had come. I told her and my child goodbye, 
and warned her that if I did not come back in a few days, perhaps I might never return. That afternoon I went away to a secret place to pray and read the Bible. I became deep in prayer. It seemed that my whole soul would tear from me. I cried before God. I laid my face to the ground. I looked up to God and cried, if you will forgive me for the way that I have done, I'll try to do better. I'm sorry that I've been so neglectful all these years in doing the work you wanted me to do. Will you speak to me some way, God? If you don't help me, I can't go on. Then along in the night, at about the eleventh hour, I had quit praying and was sitting up when I noticed the light flickering in the room. Thinking someone was coming with the flashlight, I looked out of the window, but there was no one, and when I looked back, the light was spreading out on the floor, becoming wider. Now I know this seems very strange to you, as it did to me also. As the light was spreading, of course I became excited and started from the chair, but as I looked up, there hung that great star. However, it did not have five points like a star, but looked more like a ball of fire or light shining down upon the floor. Just then I heard someone walking across the floor, which startled me again, as I knew of no one who would be coming there besides myself. Now, coming through the light, I saw the feet of a man coming toward me, as naturally as you would walk to me. He appeared to be a man who, in human weight, would weigh about two hundred pounds, clothed in a white robe. He had a smooth face, no beard, dark hair down to his shoulders, rather dark complexioned, with a very pleasant countenance, and coming closer, his eyes caught with mine seeing how fearful I was, he began to speak. Fear not. I am sent from the presence of Almighty God to tell you that your peculiar life and your misunderstood ways have been to indicate that God has sent you to take a gift of divine healing to the peoples of the world. If you will be sincere, and can get the people to believe you, nothing shall stand before your prayer, not even cancer. Words cannot express how I felt. He told me many things which I do not have space to record here. He told me how I would be able to detect diseases by vibrations on my hand. He went away, but I have seen him several times since then. He has appeared to me perhaps once or twice within the space of six months and has spoken with me. A few times he has appeared visibly in the presence of others. I do not know who he is or I only know that he is the messenger of God to me. Needless to say, I started praying for the sick people. I do not claim to take the place of a doctor. I know that doctors are able to assist nature, but they are only men. God is almighty. The great things which have taken place during these months are too innumerable to ever be recorded, but God has confirmed the angels' words time after time. Deaf, dumb, blind, all manners of diseases have been healed, and thousands of testimonies are on record to date. I do not have any power of my own to do this. I am a helpless human until I feel his presence. Many people who have attended these meetings know that their diseases and sins have been told them right from the platform. Dear reader, please do not misunderstand my poor, illiterate way of trying to convey all this to you. I say it that you might have a clearer understanding of how to take advantage of God's gift. He told me to be sincere and get the people to believe, and that is what I am trying to do. God always has something or someone to work through, and I am only an instrument used by him. No mortal can take credit for performing a miracle, and I am just a mortal. I do not know how much longer God will permit me to do this, but by His grace, I intend to serve Him the best that I know how by serving His people as long as He allows me to live. 
There were some other things that the angel told Brother Brennan during this remarkable visitation which have been related from time to time in his preaching. One of those things concerned the two signs that were to be given him. As has already been mentioned, the first sign, not for healing was to be a gift in his left band. By the power of God, with this gift he would discern or detect the diseases that the people had. This supernatural sign would result in the building up of the faith of the entire congregation. Then there was to be given a second sign, so that if they did not believe the first, they would believe the second. This reminds us of the story of Moses, who also was given two signs, so that if the people did not believe the first, they would believe the second. Now this second sign, according to the angel, would be a gift that would allow Brother Brunham to discern the thoughts and deeds in the past life of the individual. Sometimes the revelation would come of some incident in the person's life that only the individual himself knew about, and the revealing of which would greatly strengthen the person's faith. We might add that any sin that is under the blood is never revealed, but in case the thing was covered over and unconfessed, it would be brought to light through this gift, thus usually bringing the person to an immediate repentance. We have watched the operation of these two signs, and may say with great assurance that the manifestation of these gifts are as perfect as any ever exercised by a human being. The first sign was given immediately after the visitation. The second sign has been manifest in the ministry of Brother Brenham only comparatively recently. In connection with this sign, the angel made this significant statement that the thoughts of men speak louder in heaven than do their words on earth. How solemn an admonition this is, and how urgent it is that all of us be absolutely sincere before God, and live a sober, honest life in the fear of God. Still another thing that the angel said was that Jesus was coming very soon, and that this commission was one of the signs of the nearness of his coming. That if Brother Brynham would be faithful to this call, the results of it would reach out to the whole world and would shake the nations. Finally, the angel indicated that by these signs God was calling all his people together into the unity of the Spirit, that they should be with one heart and of one accord. More will be said concerning this angelic visitation and its aftermath in the following chapter, as we listen to the testimony which comes from the people of Brother Branham's own congregation. Chapter 10. After the visitation of the angel, Brother Branham returned to his home. On Sunday evening he spoke in his tabernacle at Jeffersonville. The people of his church believed in him and loved him. It is to them we go at this time for the continuation of our story of the course of events which were now unfolding rapidly and would soon plummet Brother Branham onto the stage of a nationwide ministry. Many visions had been given to Brother Branham during the last year he was with us, and all of them were proven true before our very eyes. But the special gift of healing, which he had received during the visitation of the angel, he proclaimed only a few days before he left us to go to St. Louis. We at Jeffersonville believe that William Branham is a prophet sent from God. One of the wonderful things about our brother is that he is humble. We have known him since he was a schoolboy, and it is true that he has always lived a clean, moral, quiet life, and has always seemed to be a little different. Many here have watched these scenes in which God has been unfolding his mysteries, some of which have been more or less hidden since apostolic days. After his conversion when he began preaching here, we erected a large tent for him and people came from far and near. At his very first campaign some 3,000 people attended to hear the story he proclaimed of Jesus of Nazareth. We realized then that God gave him some special phenomenon, but we did not know just what it would be. Many signs and wonders followed him in the early days of his ministry, 
such as could be understood only by spirit-filled people. We are still wondering what the outcome will be as the effect of these things spread across the world, growing greater and greater as the days go by. It was on Memorial Sunday night in the year, speaking in the tabernacle, that he told of his meeting with the angel, and how the angel told him of the gift of healing that he was to take to the peoples of the world, that many thousands of people would be coming to him for healing, and that he would be standing before thousands in packed auditoriums. Now for a carnally minded person this seemed absolutely impossible, as this boy was a humble worker, a very poor peasant type, and uneducated. But we had seen other visions of his come to pass, and he spoke this with such certainty, and openly declared it to everyone, that we were sure this would come to pass also. He also stated that the angel had declared to him that he would be able to discern disease by supernatural power, and then if he would stay humble that he would be able to discern the thoughts of people's hearts and tell them of their past lives, and that many would misunderstand him. The angel further told him that this was the spirit of Christ working through him, that he had been called from birth for this purpose, and that the last days were here. That this was the sign of the last days, and by this gift God was calling all his people together into unity of the spirit. We knew that these signs were scriptural and we recalled the manner in which Jesus Christ, when the Spirit was upon him, told Nathanael that he saw him under the fig tree before Philip called him, and by this sign Nathanael knew Jesus to be the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. Also when the woman of Samaria was told by Christ of her five husbands she ran into the city saying, Come, see a man, which told me all things that ever I did, is not this the Christ? And also Moses, the great deliverer of the children of Israel was foreordained of God and was born in peculiar circumstances. Satan tried to destroy him and later he was given two signs on the eve of the deliverance that the people might recognize him as being sent of God for this deliverance. Now again the angel said that these signs were given to him that the people would believe on Jesus Christ, the one he loved. Also they were given for the purpose of bringing together all the church that people should no longer be separated by creeds and denominations. Certainly Brother Branham's heart goes out to all his brethren who have separated themselves one from another. He believes that God will bring together all those of his church into the unity of the Spirit and then Jesus shall come for his church. We believe that our brother's life could be compared to Moses of old. Our brother is very humble and does not profess to be a great person. He takes no glory to himself, but gives all the credit to Jesus Christ who saved him and called him. On this Sunday night after the appearance of the angel to Brother Branham, while he was speaking in the tabernacle at Jeffersonville, someone came in and handed him a telegram. It was from St. Louis and it asked him to come and pray for a girl, whose name was Betty Dorgati, that was dying. The news of what had happened had gotten as far as St. Louis, and now he was asked to go on this call. He was working daily for a living, and had no money to go on, so we took up an offering for this purpose. We got enough money to pay his way over and back by train coach. He borrowed a suit of clothes from one of his brothers, and a coat from another brother, and at near midnight we put him on the train at Louisville, Kentucky, where he started for St. Louis. On the way over he seemed to be very calm, knowing that God would not fail him. When he arrived at the station in St. Louis he was greeted by Reverend Dorgati, a pastor in the city, who had sent for him to minister to his little daughter who lay dying with some unknown trouble. The best physicians of the city had been called and they were wholly unable to diagnose her case. Brother Dorgati said with a weary, we've done all we know to do. Our doctors have done likewise. 
We have prayed and prayed, and many ministers and congregations of the city have fasted and prayed, but seemingly to no avail. Then Brother Branham walked with the father to his home where the dying child lay. He was greeted by the mother and grandfather of the child. Many friends were in the house praying at the time. He looked at the pathetic sight, and the tired parents looked upon him so earnestly as if to say, Can't you help us? Tears rolled down our brother's cheeks as he moved slowly toward the bed. What a sad sight to see a little curly-headed girl, nothing but skin and bones, clawing at her little face like an animal. She was screaming at the top of her voice, which by then had become very hoarse because this had been going on for three months. Brother Branham knelt in the room and prayed with the rest of them. But after prayer was made, seemingly the child was no better. Brother Branham then asked for a quiet place to pray by himself, so he could see what Jesus Christ would have him to do. He realized that of himself he could do nothing. You will recall reading in the fifth chapter of John when Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda and left the multitude of lame and blind and halt without healing, he said to the Jews, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do, for whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. This is true in the ministry of our brother. Often he sees the thing by vision. It is first shown to him by God and then he merely acts out the drama that he has seen. They took him down to the church. For some three hours, Reverend Dorgati, his father and brother Branham prayed. After this they returned back to the home to find the scene the same as before. Brother Branham then went into a room by himself to intercede for the child. Then he would walk up and down the street, and finally he sat in the pastor's car that was parked nearby. After a while the car door came open and Brother Branham stepped forward toward the house, this time with a stem look. Something had happened. He was met at the door by the father and grandfather, who, taking one look at his countenance, knew something had happened. He asked them, Do you believe that I am God's servant? Yes, was the cry of the family. Then do as I tell you, doubting nothing. To the mother he said, Get me a pan of clean water, and a white cloth. Your child shall live for God has sent his angel to me and told me that your child shall live. While the mother was getting the water, the father and the grandfather were asked to kneel, one to the right and one to the left of Brother Branham at the foot of the bed. When the mother returned she was asked to stroke the damp cloth over the face, then the hands, then the feet while Brother Branham was in prayer. Then he said, Father, as thou hast shown me these things so I have done according to the vision that thou hast given me. In the name of Jesus Christ, thy son, I pronounce this child healed. The evil spirit left the girl immediately. She is a normal, healthy child living in the same community today. People of the city flocked to Brother Branham but he withdrew himself, promising he would return later, which he did, within a few weeks. Our little girl, Betty, had been sick for three months. We hit two noted doctors of the city, but seemingly they could not find the cause of her sickness. We also had many outstanding ministers of the city and country around, praying for her. She steadily grew worse. Then we sent to Jeffersonville, Indiana, for a man by the name of Reverend William Branham, who has the gift of divine healing. Brother Bill, as he is called, came to us at once. After hours of praying, he came in and told us that the Lord had showed him a vision of what to do for our little Betty. She was mere skin and bones and shook all the time as if she had palsy. Brother Bill asked us if we would believe God and would obey what he said to do. 
after he had prayed and called over her the name of Jesus, our little girl was immediately healed. That has been about months ago. Our little Betty is now in perfect health and is as fat as she can be. I will be glad to write to anyone in question of her healing, or any of the healings that took place during the revival which Brother Branham held there in St. Louis in. Chapter 11. On the day of June, Brother Branham, his family, and two sisters from his church left Jeffersonville for St. Louis where he was to begin his first healing campaign. It was a beautiful morning and they sang gospel songs as they journeyed on their way. At four o'clock they reached the city of St. Louis, where the party had prearranged to meet Reverend Dorgati at the end of the large MacArthur Bridge which spans the Mississippi River. His car was there, posted with signs of the coming revival. Brother Dorgati met them and took them to his home. The party was greeted by the family, including little Betty, who had been healed a few days before. That evening they all went to the large tent where Brother Branham was to preach. As he explained to the congregation what God had done for him, the people listened with evident interest and attention. Eighteen people were prayed for that night. Among these was a man that had been crippled for years. After prayer was made in the name of Jesus, he arose clapping his hands and walked unaided. A blind man was healed and several had deaf ears opened. On the following morning Brother Branham was asked to make a sick call in the psychopathic ward of the St. Louis Hospital. The insane woman was restored to normal and later obtained her release. They drove over to Granite City, Illinois and found a woman weighing about pounds suffering with cancer. After prayer God touched her body and she was then asked to dress and go home. At the next home they visited there was a lady who had been paralyzed in her right side for about a year. Brother Branyan prayed for her and then commanded her to rise in the name of Jesus Christ. She obeyed and immediately raised her right hand above her head and stood alone. Then she walked back and forth across the room, clapping her hands. Her voice, which had been gone, was restored, and she was able to speak. When the party returned to the tent that evening they found it crowded. Many stood outside in the rain and others were in cars parked nearby. Again the service was blessed, with a number of wonderful healings taking place. As the meetings continued from night to night miracles of even a more outstanding nature took place. Heavy unseasonable rains were falling but it did not deter the people from attending. They brought old newspapers with them and used them to cover the wet seats. More chairs were provided, and these were quickly filled with many left standing. On Sunday evening a colored minister, who was totally blind in both eyes and known by many in the congregation, came forward to be prayed for. After prayer Brother Branham held out his band, and the colored man called out, Reverend, I see your hand. Then he looked up and saw the lights. He cried, Praise the Lord, I can count the lights in the place and can see the crow psalms they are hanging to. The people glorified God for this great miracle for many of them had known this colored minister to be blind for approximately twenty years. A woman that night that rejected the call of the Spirit left the meeting, but had gone only a few steps when she suffered a heart attack and fainted on the sidewalk next to a tavern. Brother Branham went out and prayed for her, after which she arose and confessed how she had resisted God's call to her heart. The services had only been scheduled for a few days, but now several ministers of the city came to the room where he was, urging him to continue the meeting for longer than he had planned. After kneeling down and asking God for divine guidance, Brother Branham said that the Lord willing he would continue. The interest in the meetings increased from night to night, and police appeared to see that all was in order. Testimonies of healing were now coming in. 
One of the first to be prayed for in the campaign was a little lady about 70 years of age, whom the party had noticed had a cancer on her nose about the size of a small egg. Now, less than a week later, she returned to tell that it had gone. Many other testimonies were given. Of course the testimony of little Betty Dorgati, who demonstrated that she was now sound and well, was very impressive. A minister who could not raise his arms was prayed for. He then raised his arms in the air and praised God. Many deaf and dumb were healed in the meetings and demonstrated that they could hear by repeating words to the congregation. A woman being able to walk without braces praised the Lord. A woman suffering with locked jaw and arthritis was instantly healed. She was able to open and shut her mouth easily. And so the healings multiplied and were beyond count. With the great number to be prayed for increasing nightly, Brother Branyam often would pray until a clock in the morning. This practically became a custom for him from that time on for many months. So great was his compassion for the sick that it was difficult for the evangelist to leave the people. The campaign continued until June. On the following morning he returned to Jeffersonville, Indiana. He had received a telegram from a little girl's parents, who said that their daughter was in a serious condition. When Brother Branyam appeared at the hospital room he prayed for her and Jesus touched her body. She then dressed and went home, sound and well. Some time later Brother Branyam returned to St. Louis to speak in the Keel Auditorium for a one-night meeting. Some, packed into that great building to hear him at that time. Chapter 12. Immediately following the events of the last chapter great signs and mighty works of God began to follow the ministry of Brother Branyam. In a space of three months so many things happened on the phenomenal side that the recounting of them would fill several books. How the matter became so widespread in so short a time is still hard to understand. Inside of six months people were coming or writing from beyond national boundaries. Some saw him in a vision and came to Jeffersonville to inquire whether there was anyone by that name there. Townspeople would refer them to the tabernacle. Then those people who attended there with happy hearts would tell them the story. We shall narrate a few of these remarkable events which took place during the next few months. In the course of the summer, Brother Branham was invited to Jonesboro, Arkansas, to the Bible Hour Tabernacle, where Richard Reed is pastor. People had gathered to the little city from 28 states and Mexico, and some, people, it was estimated, attended the meeting. They were living in tents, trucks, and trailers, and some were sleeping in their cars. It was said that for a distance of miles about there were no hotel accommodations available. On the last night of the services, just as the evangelist came to the platform, with thousands packed in and around the tabernacle, an ambulance driver standing to the right yelled and motioned to attract his attention. He said, Brother Branyam, my patient has died. Can't you come to her? Someone said, there are approximately people standing between him and the reserved ambulance row. He cannot go. Then four stout men stepped up and as they started taking him out it was a moving sight to see the people pushing, trying to get near him. The evangelist was taken to the ambulance row, and inside one of the ambulances he saw kneeling on the floor an old man, his overalls patched in many places. In his hands he clutched an old torn hat sewed with twine cord, and he said, Brother Branyam, mother is gone. The man of God walked close to the still form and took her by the hand. Her eyes were set and she lay still and breathless. Brother Branyam, as he read the diagnosis, looked back at the husband and said, She has cancer. The man replied, That is true. And kneeling on the floor he started crying, Oh God, give me back mother. 
Then all was silent in the ambulance for a few moments. Next the voice of Brother Branham was heard praying, Almighty God, author of eternal life, giver of all good gifts, I beseech thee in the name of thy dearly beloved Son, Jesus Christ, give this woman her life again. Suddenly the limp hand tightened on the hand of Brother Branham, and the taut skin across her forehead began to wrinkle. Then with a little assistance from Brother Branham she sat up. The astonished husband saw what had taken place and threw his arms around her and cried, Mother, thank God, you're with me again. Brother Branham slipped to the door of the ambulance to return to the platform. The driver of the ambulance said, Sir, there are so many people standing against the door that it cannot be opened. Then he let him out another way, at the same time holding his coat against the window so no one would see him leave. When he arrived at the lot it was packed full of people standing in a drizzling rain. He started pushing his way through the crowd. None of them paid him any heed for they had never seen him before. Day and night the tabernacle was packed, and few left the building unless it was for sandwiches or some necessary reason. All of a sudden he heard a pathetic cry, Daddy, Daddy, someone was calling. Looking up, he saw a blind colored girl pushing through the crowd. She had lost her father and no one was trying to help her find him. This pitiful sight touched the heart of the evangelist, and he stepped into her path so that she would have to touch him. Excuse me please, said the colored girl as she realized she had run into someone. I am blind and have lost my father and I can't find my way back to the bus. Where are you from? Asked Brother Branham. From Memphis, she said, what are you doing here? He asked. I came to see the healer she replied. How did you hear of him? This morning I was listening on the radio and I heard people talking that had been born deaf and dumb. I heard a man who said he was from Missouri, said he'd been drawing the blind pension for 12 years and now he could read the Bible. Sir, I've been blind since a little girl. Cataracts blinded me. The doctor says they're wrapped around the optical nerve of my eye. If he should try to operate I would be worse off and my only hope is to get to the healer and then God will heal me. I am told this is his last night there. And they say I can't even get near the building. And now I have lost my father in the crowd, will you please help me to get to the bus sir? Of course the girl being blind couldn't see to whom she was talking and none of the people near her had seen him before either, and they were wondering who this man who was giving attention to this colored girl was. Then Brother Branham said to test her faith, do you believe those things that you have heard? especially when we have so many fine doctors today? She replied, yes yeah, sure, the doctors have failed to do anything for me. I believe the story of the angel that visited Brother Branham is true. If you will only help me where the man is, then I'll be able to find my father. This was too much for Brother Branham. He dropped his head while tears rolled down his cheeks. Then, raising his head, he said, lady, perhaps I'm the one you're looking for. Then she grabbed him by the lapels of his coat. Is you the healer? She cried. With tears rolling down her cheeks, she begged, Don't pass me, sir. Have mercy upon me, a blind woman. One would be reminded of blind Fanny Crosby who wrote, Pass me not, O gentle Saviour, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Of course she had heard of other blind being healed, and had come believing that she too would receive her sight if she could get to Brother Branham. But said the evangelist, I am not the healer, I am Brother Branham. Jesus Christ is your healer. Then after he asked the blind girl to bow her head, he began to pray, 
Lord, some years ago, an old drugged cross was dragging the streets of Jerusalem, dragging the bloody footprints of the bearer. On the road to Calvary, his frail body fell under the load of the cross. Then along came Simon of Siren, and helped him bear it. Now, Lord, one of Simon's children stands here staggering in the darkness. I'm sure you understand. At that moment the girl screamed. I was once blind. Now I can see. The men who were coming for Brother Branham were drawing near. All the people under the floodlights then recognized this young man as Brother Branham. As they rushed toward him another heart-moving thing happened. An old man with a twisted leg, leaning on a crutch, had been watching this drama, and he cried out, Brother Branham, I know you. I've been standing in this rain for eight hours, have mercy on me. Do you believe and accept me as God's servant? He was asked. I do. He answered, Then in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you're healed. You may throw away your crutches. And immediately his crooked limb was made straight. His leaping and screaming drew the attention of the whole crowd and they began to press forward to touch his clothes. Up until this time Brother Branham had received very little remuneration. Rarely had an offering been taken up for him and his own tabernacle. He had worked as a game warden to support his family. The old suit of clothes that he had worn that night was torn and patched. He had discovered that one of the pockets had been badly torn and his attempt to repair it was rather amateurish. So he held his right hand over the pocket, giving his left hand when meeting other ministers. But the people did not notice the ragged coat at night. They were crying and pushing and trying to touch that worn garment, and as they did they were healed. It reminded one of the days of Jesus, when faith was high and everyone who touched the hem of the garment of the Savior was made whole. A few days after this meeting Brother Branham went to Camden, Arkansas, to conduct a meeting in the city auditorium. While he was explaining his calling and ministry to the people a great bright light came into the building and settled over his head. A photographer who happened to be there took a picture of it, and lo, the light showed in the picture. Some might have supposed that the photograph had been retouched, had it not been that many hundreds of people present, witnessed the unusual phenomenon themselves. Many were healed and led to Christ in that meeting. The following morning, while being taken by a group of men from the building to his car as hundreds were pressing forward to touch him, a voice was heard crying, Have mercy upon me, thou man of God. Standing off from the crowd was a blind grey-headed coloured man, accompanied by his wife. His hat was in his hand in reverence. Brother Branham stopped. Take me to him, he said. One of the men said, Brother Branham, you are in the south. Do not leave the white people to go to the colored. Brother Branham replied that the Spirit of God was speaking to him to go to the man. As he drew near where the colored man was, the men drew a ring of arms around him so he could get through. The wife was saying, The parson is co-mean toward you. Be quiet. The colored man raised two feeble shaking arms, felt of Brother Branham's face and said, Is dies you, Parson Branham? I never heard of you before in all my life until last night. I had a good old mammy that's been gone many years. She had heartfelt religion too. Her neva told me a lie in her life, parson. Now I single quote to see been blind many years, and last night it seemed she stood near my bed, parson, and said, Honey you go to Camden, Arkansas. There you will find the Lord's servant. His name is Branyam and you shall receive your sight. Parson, I immediately rose and put on my clothes, caught the bus and wife and I have come over a hundred miles. 
Brother Branyam listened to the story, raised his eyes now filled with tears and said, Father, I thank you for being merciful to the blind. Then he touched his hands to the colored man's eyes saying, Open your eyes, Jesus Christ has healed you. And lo, the colored man could see. Many other things happened of the same nature. On occasions the Spirit of God would speak to him about some sick person who had been on a bed of affliction for years. When this happened, invariably when he went to them they would be delivered. Many of these persons appear in his meetings from place to place, testifying now that they are well and strong. On one occasion while in Santa Rosa, California, a man came into the building, and seeking out Brother Branham asked him to spell his name. When he had done this the man held a piece of yellow paper in his hand and said, That's it, Mother. He said that he had come from a Pentecostal church, and he claimed that years ago, while he and his wife were praying, the Holy Ghost spoke through him saying, My servant, William Branham will come up this west coast bearing a gift of divine healing in the latter times. They believed that it was a prophecy that had been given. And when they had heard Brother Branham's name they dug out that old prophecy and there it was written. Thus is concluded the account as supplied from information given by those of Brother Branham's congregation at Jeffersonville. We might also add that during those early months two young men by the names of O.L. Jaggers and Gail Jackson attended a number of the services. Recently at a special conference in Dallas those two young men asked Brother Branham if he remembered them. He did, but was greatly surprised that these brethren, who since have been blessed with amazing success, and whose ministries have reached tens of thousands for Christ, and have been attended with mighty signs and wonders, were the same young men who had come to his meetings in his early campaigns. The following by Rev. Jack Moore, co-editor of The Voice of Healing, is an illuminating account of sketches and highlights in Brother Branham's meetings during the next few months in the course of the narrative. Chapter 13 God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform, he plants his feet upon the sea and rides upon the storm. From this lovely land of Louisiana, where once stood forest after forest of tall, stately pines unsurpassed anywhere in the world perhaps an early pioneer Pentecostal evangelist wrote a little book entitled The Coming of Jesus and the White Throne Judgment. In this book he tells how the rhythmic pulsation of these swaying evergreens sounded like silvery strains of chanted psalms to the listening ear. And only those who have been privileged to hear this kind of music will fully understand how that to him they seem to sing, He's coming soon. He's coming soon. Now this old soldier, with many others of yesterday, has laid down his armor. May God rest their gallant souls. The trees, too, are mostly all gone. Their voices are all but silent. But the message of their song lives on. His coming is nearer than when we first believed. Another wind is blowing through the land. There's a wind that blows full of grace and power, as in creation's most wondrous hour, when God gently breathed on a form of sod and the first man lived by the breath of God. The wind is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost it came as a rushing mighty wind. These men lived again by the breath of God. Just so, many today are being awakened from the sleep of death by this Holy Spirit refreshing. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Said the psalmist. For a season, because of sin, man was reduced to a stinted state of spiritual poverty, beyond all hope of redemption. Until Jesus came. And now he is the hope of his people and the strength of Israel. In his full restoration, man will be higher than angels and dark angels. Even so now, through the Holy Ghost, 
some are being used in such a special way as to cause the inebriated cities of our flourishing America to become God-conscious. And that leads us to center our remarks upon a man greatly beloved and wonderfully used of God, William Branham. Words can but fail us as we look back, now almost three years ago, to the time of our first meeting with our dear brother. Though we had dreamed of someday seeing something like this, it seemed that we were still napping and were not aware of the rousing biblical melodrama that was taking place in the state just north of us until some of our brethren attended the Branham meetings in Arkansas and brought back the incredible reports of what they saw. This sounded good, but the half had not been told us. We were destined to encounter some of the most precious experiences of our lives. In the providence of God the evangelist was sent to bless us with a brief sample of his touching ministry. The air was laden with fascinating stories about this unusual little man and his gift. How could we conceive of them all? One spoke enthusiastically of the vibrations on his hand by which he could tell any person whether or not they had a germ disease and what it was. Another told of the inspiring sermons he was able to preach, and yet he declared he was not a preacher. Some even claimed to have seen cancers which had passed from diseased bodies a given number of hours after prayer, and still others painted glowing pictures of deaf and dumb children speaking in a microphone, cripples shouting and dancing, endless prayer lines subsiding only after the weary evangelist had slumped in exhaustion and been carried away from the clamoring crowds. Vast audiences keeping heads bowed in reverence for hours while no sounds penetrated the atmosphere except the stifled wails of the sufferers, the tender, earnest voice of the praying evangelist, soft strains of only believe and the frequent outbursts of praise as a healing took place. One lady who followed his meetings for hundreds of miles, in making a tearful attempt to describe the humility, compassion, and meekness of this phenomenal character, declared that when she looked at him she could not see a human at all, but Jesus. Everyone agreed that you could never be the same after seeing him. Yet for all this we were totally unprepared for what actually happened to us. Did it not all seem too fantastic to be true? But it was true, and more, as we were so soon to learn. Surprise and bewilderment were among our mixed emotions that first Sunday evening of Brother Branham's visit to us when we arrived early at our large frame tabernacle and found the building so congested that we could hardly get in. This had never happened before on the first night of any meeting. But this was a Branham meeting. A steady stream of traffic had wound its way through Arkansas hills and Louisiana valleys that day, reverently tracing the path of this 20th century prophet whose prayers could cause diseases to be accursed, broken homes to be reunited, drunken fathers to repent, prodigal sons to return, feuding churches to stack arms and make peace, and lukewarm Christians to be rekindled by the fire of their first love. We managed to secure a large high school auditorium, but we were forced to move back to the church after only two nights, due to the ravaging press of the throngs which descended upon the school, even during the school hours. We were privileged to keep only five glorious days and nights of this celestial vigil, but the effect of those memorable days lives on today. The people were left humbled and tendered, because they knew that Jesus of Nazareth had passed our way in his servant. For that holy pause we had seemingly turned back the pages of time and joined the admiring host of followers that shuffled along the dusty trails of Galilee in faithful devotion to a lowly carpenter who claimed to be the Messiah of Israel. In our visionary procession we had passed by the place of the tombs which erupted a naked demoniac, screaming and hissing his objection to the presence of Christ, 
but sat at his feet a moment later clothed and in his right mind. We were among the jostling mob around Jesus when he asked the abrupt question, Who touched me? And saw a trembling little woman cast herself at his feet and declare before all the people for what cause she had pulled at the border of his robe and how she had been healed immediately. And then we followed on to Jera's house and saw the raising of his daughter. We heard the plain words of a deaf and dumb child after his tongue was loosed by the master's touch, and laughed to see the lame man leap for joy. We clamored for a seaside seat with five thousand other men who had forsaken the anvil and the hammer and closed the doors of their shops to spend the day hours in rapt listening to the wonderful teachings of this divine philosopher. We wept with the women as we gazed on his beautiful face and recognized the sorrow and grief there that spoke of a broken heart, and felt that melting, warming sensation that one glance from his kind eyes could bring to the soul. Yes, Bible days were here again. Here was a man who practiced what we preached. I say this, not to exalt any human, but only to emphasize that our deep appreciation for our brother stemmed from the fact that his ministry seemed to bring our lover Lord closer to us, and to better acquaint us with his living works, his personality, and his deity than anything had before. And what better thing could be said of a human? The hallowed feeling that came over us as we saw the wonderful triumphs of faith made us anxious to help in any small way that we could. Whoever saw a little crippled or afflicted child brought into the prayer line without being moved to be willing to go to the ends of the earth to help these little ones if possible? So from church, friends, loved ones and home we departed to lend our might of assistance to this spectacular ministry, the first destination being San Antonio, Texas. Hundreds were prayed for and delivered during these great days in the San Pedro Playhouse, saints revived and sinners converted. We can never forget some of these moving scenes. It is without fluctuation that Brother Branham wins the hearts of the people wherever he goes, and as we were too late to learn, these touching farewell scenes would be similarly reenacted many times before our eyes. We would not forget the students of International Bible College, who with their leader, Brother Coote, helped the sponsoring pastor, our lovable brother Stribling, and all became so attached to the evangelist. It was heartrending to see them say goodbye. This is one of many sad events which will never be known in heaven. Parting and farewell. Two incidents stand out as we look back on this meeting. An indelible picture in my mind recalls a middle-aged man feeling his way through the prayer line, stone blind for years. As he nears the evangelist I hear him say, I feel my eyes getting warm. When prayed for he was told to look up, and for the first time since a child, he says, I see a light. I cannot soon forget the expression upon his face as he stood and gazed for several minutes with a smile of gladness across his face. The next incident was a stirring message given in the spirit and interpreted, almost identical to two others which were to be given in other Branham meetings in different places, a sure testimony of the authenticity of this anointed ministry. It was uttered with such rousing force that it almost seemed unearthly, and this was the gist of the message. That as John the Baptist was sent as a forerunner of the Lord's first coming, so was he sending forth this evangelist and others like him to move the people and prepare them for his second coming. Months later we heard this same message interpreted amidst a large crowd of people attending the Branham meeting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by Sister Anna Schrader whom we later learned to appreciate deeply. Truly, these words penetrated our hearts. The next meeting we were in was in Phoenix, Arizona. Here we met for the first time our friend and brother, who was later to become a member of the Evangelists' Party, 
brother John Sharit, a lovely brother and prominent businessman. The Phoenix meeting was well attended and many signs and wonders were done in the name of Jesus. On our return from the coast we stopped again in Phoenix with our Spanish brethren, where our prayer line seemed endless. My! How those minds which had been trained to Catholicism responded to our brother's ministry. He prayed for them without rest for about eight hours. From the capital city of Arizona, we moved west to Los Angeles and Long Beach. The services began in Monterey Park in a beautiful church which was crowded from the beginning. From here we moved to Municipal Auditorium in Long Beach. The service had been announced for PM Comma but in the late afternoon, in the midst of a service of another group, the sick, crippled, insane, some in straight jackets, began to pour in. The old-fashioned revival our speaker sensed this and was glad, it appeared to the writer, that it was someone else's faith that was being challenged and not his. Many were delivered and saved. A brief stay in Oakland was followed by a gracious meeting in the capital city of the great state of California, Sacramento, and here a new chapter in this story should begin, for while the rest of the party was motored from Oakland to Sacramento, I boarded a plane for Ashland, Oregon, to see our good friend of many years standing, Gordon Lindsay, and tell him about what God was doing. He was in current revival in his church in Ashland. But what could you guess? He believed the true report, closed the meeting for the time and drove with his wife, his evangelistic party and myself down through rugged Northern California to Sacramento to be in the Branham meeting. It is without hesitation that I say this was the first step in a process that changed the course of his life completely, and consequently, perhaps, the lives of many others, for he is now editor of the Voice of Healing magazine, reaching tens of thousands, where he once only touched the lives of a single congregation. The beautiful little city of Santa Rosa was our next stop, where we were treated with angelic care. God bless those sweet and humble saints whose names are in the Book of Life. An account of the meeting at Fresno could fill a number of pages. How could we ever forget the scene of the great throng of people who sat through one entire day waiting for the arrival of Brother Branham? We were to be there only one night and the service had been announced several days ahead. When the day finally came the people began to move into the church for the night service. The building filled up before noon, and by service time that night two tents had been stretched and people were everywhere. It reminded one of reading the book of Mark or Luke where the people trod one another, so great was the press. Finally, the sick were ministered to, and we at Ancoma were at home with some lovely friends who had prepared supper for us. Only we were a bit late. From Fresno we journeyed eastward back to Phoenix and the Indian Reservation. The Indian Reservation. The mention of those words brings back memories of dramatic scenes and incidents enacted by these superstitious, tribal natives that would fill a book. I wish all my readers could have stood with me before this clamorous congregation that night and watched the general transformation of a motley sea of brown, leathery faces from an expression of dubious curiosity and bewilderment to that of exhilarated admiration. Bless their hearts. After all, they are the original Americans, but I fear they have been sadly neglected and pushed aside, and now most of them are steeped in poverty and disease and heathendom. The royal hospitality of the lovely little missionary here is unforgettable. A brave soldier she is, indeed, in her gallant attempt to break down the traditional superstitions of novelistic practices and the tribal witch doctor and offer a living, loving Christ, the great physician, for the many ills of these needy people. 
It was a joy to aid her by bringing a man whose revitalizing faith in God could bring about miracles the Indian could see for himself. For he must see to believe. And that is exactly what happened. The church was packed out and many stood outside so the evangelist preached through an interpreter from the steps of the church to a not so sure audience, but soon the prayer line was formed and the power of the Lord was present to heal. Here we and they were privileged to see a real display of faith. Miracle after miracle took place right before our eyes. The demonstration of just a few of these miracles was all the Indians needed to convince them. Presently, we noticed a bit of confusion as numbers of them began to get up and leave abruptly. Then saw the explanation of this a little later when they began to file back in, bringing others with them. Seeing had meant believing to the red man, and he had left a scene of the marvelous to go and bring in his sick and invalid loved ones who had been left in the huts. I would mention an elderly woman who was hobbling through the prayer line and homemade crutches of broomsticks. When she came in contact with the evangelist, she never waited for our brother to pray for her, but just handed him her crutches, straightened up and walked away. Such simple, childlike faith. After a few weeks at home, our next get-together was in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where we enjoyed the fellowship of our Canadian brethren of like precious faith. By way of Prince Albert, where we stopped for one service, we journeyed to Edmonton, Alberta, that great city in the south end of the Auckland Highway. Here we were scheduled for several days in the ice arena, which seats five or six thousand. Only eternity will reveal all that was done. Next we went to Calgary by way of Jasper Banff National Park, where we saw some of the most awesome scenery, unequaled anywhere on the continent as far as we know. The Calgary meeting was greatly blessed of the Lord. Here we found everything in order for a great meeting. The building was one of the largest in the city and was overflowed at every healing service. Many signs and wonders were done in the name of Jesus. I recall an instance in which a prayer line of several hundred was moving along by the evangelist to be prayed for. I noticed a woman with very badly crossed eyes. As our brother laid his hands on her and prayed, he, with eyes still closed, told the congregation to lift their heads and look upon the woman, that he knew her eyes were straight before he even looked himself. Did not James say the prayer of faith shall save the sick? Not prayer alone. January have found us leaving our frozen homelands for a southward pilgrimage to the winter paradise of Miami, Florida. However, our motive was not a winter vacation, as was that of the convulsive mobs who soaked their money in the horse races, dog races, beach extravagance and general sinful revelry, but to minister to the needy who populate, yes, even as beautiful an Eden of nature as this. They came by the droves, forming a truly varied audience representing almost every state in the Union, and some foreign lands, and bringing some of the most pitiable examples of human suffering we had seen. Not all, of course, but many of them went away whole. Here it was our privilege to meet Avak, the young Christian Armenian, who had been called and anointed in his native country with a similar experience to that of Brother Branyam. Heaven smiled on us one night during this campaign when we were privileged to meet Reverend F. F. Bosworth a veteran of the healing ministry in earlier days, of whom we had heard and read for many years. It was love at first sight for Brother Bosworth and Brother Branyam, as well as the rest of us, and it was our later pleasure to have him work with us in the evangelistic party. A panorama of beautiful scenes unfold as I review this memorable period in my mind. Not only the beauties of nature which we enjoyed in this picturesque country, 
but the enchanted hours we spent in traveling up the coast and across the Miami Trail, in the company of our lovable brother Branyam, my wife and daughter, Anna Jean and her beloved friend, Joanita. A foretaste of heaven. We feasted on the word as our brother expounded its goodness to us. The sisters wept as he paralleled the mysteries and struggles of earth life with the glories of heaven, then he wept as they sang their beautiful songs of Jesus in heaven. Here was a man who lived on earth and in heaven too. He had treasures on the other side that often called his thoughts away from his meager terrestrial surroundings to the perfected celestial realms, and it seemed that his words were able to transport those in his company to the heavenlies with him. Heaven was never nearer than when they sank through tears. There waits for me a glad tomorrow, where gates of pearl swing open wide, and when I've passed this veil of sorrow, I'll dwell upon the other side. Someday, beyond the reach of mortal ken, someday, God only knows just where and when, the wheels of mortal life shall all stand still, and I shall go to dwell on Zion's hill. Someday my labors will be ended, and all my wanderings will be o'er, and all earth's broken ties be mended, and I shall sigh and weep no more. Nor could we feel more passionately the love of God than when, accompanied by the rhythmic beat of the great Atlantic surges, we heard in melody. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and with the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God! How rich and pure, how measureless and strong! It shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. How could we know that so very soon our brother would be called from us to pass through the dark shadows of the valley of death, no longer able to bear the load that had exhausted his physical capacities, and that even the memory of these days would comfort him during long months of struggle with strained nerves and mental depression. That late evening, when we gazed out across the broad expanse of salty white breakers toward the last rays of a glowing setting sun, and the evening breeze carried the sweet harmony of the girls' voices in words like this. Looking toward the sunset, life seems to fade away, shadows of night behind me, waiting to end the day. Somewhere beyond the lingering blue, hope finds a way to keep shining through faith looks beyond the sunset, where dawns eternal day. Could he feel that the time was near when word would go out to his loved ones and many friends that the sun of his short life was sinking fast? Somehow I think he must have known, for he often spoke of going. The spring of brought record of some of the greatest meetings yet, among them the Pensacola, Florida, revival. We love to think of this time. Much preparation had been made. Several groups had united together for the campaign, including all the full gospel churches that we know of in that locality, under the guidance of our lovable brother Welsh. A huge tent had been erected in a convenient location. Multitudes gathered from surrounding communities and states, as far away as Michigan. Despite a storm in which the tent collapsed, and inclement weather, the great crowds and wonderful spirit prevailed to produce a heavenly five days. One of the spectacular scenes came on a Sunday afternoon. We had announced that this would be a service especially for the unsaved. When the evangelist had finished his life story, several hundred people, at least, with melted hearts and tear-wet faces answered the invitation for all who wanted to become Christians. Only the recording angel knows the equal of this scene. Many received healing in this meeting that never came in contact with the evangelist. Faith soared high, and even long after the weary evangelist had been carried out, 
a line of all local ministers, with differences and prejudices forgotten, prayed for the unending line of hundreds seeking healing. Great day! Before leaving the Pensacola meeting with all its fond memories, we would mention one other incident on the morning of our departure. A man came to me seeking help for his little daughter. For many months, it was apparent that the evangelist would be compelled to pause for rest and recuperation, and spared the strain of hearing the problems of every individual. But we felt this need was worthy and brought him to our brother. We will never forget his story. With tears flowing down his cheeks, he tells how this beautiful little girl of about seven years was adopted in infancy, and that her mind had not developed normally and was not perfect. As I saw the compassion of this father and love for his adopted child, I thought of another scene. How we have been adopted into the Heavenly Father's family, and we too have not a perfect mind spiritually. Because of this he has infinite pity and compassion upon us. After an interval of time, we converged on Kansas City, Kansas, for a campaign in the city auditorium. Here we meet for our first time Brother Oral Roberts, who is now very active and greatly used in praying for the sick. From Kansas City, we went to Sedalia, Missouri for a few days. In spite of near collapse of the evangelist, God blessed multitudes of sick and suffering. The scheduled meet in Masonic Auditorium, Elgwin, Illinois, lasted several days, bringing a stir to the Fox River Valley as perhaps never before. As the meeting closed, we saw that the strain was too great, and time must be called or the evangelist would soon become a casualty in the warfare for Jesus. We said goodbye to the party at Elgin and turned toward the warm, hospitable south, not aware that we would see no more of our beloved evangelist for many months during which time his life and valuable ministry would almost be snuffed out. But thanks be to God, we are glad to say that at this writing we have just concluded the greatest revival in the history of our church, with evangelist William Branham a better, healthier, stronger, more gifted evangelist than ever with increased faith and anointing to preach the gospel. May God keep him strong and full of faith until his mortal son shall set all the sun of righteousness arise over an America that has been awakened from her lethargy of slumber and sleep. Chapter 14. It seems necessary at this point, for the sake of continuity, to explain the manner in which the writer came to enter the Branham story. A number of years previous, we had become acquainted with Brother Jack Moore who wrote the foregoing chapter while holding a revival for his father-in-law, Reverend G.C. Lout, who was then pastor of a church in Shreveport, Louisiana. At that time we came to esteem very highly the friendship of Brother Moore. In the years that followed, Brother Moore's business as a building contractor prospered until it became one of the most prominent in that area. However, with this prosperity, he was not too busy to feel the great spiritual need of his city. During the Depression the church he attended lost its building and the congregation became scattered. At length he and his associates determined to start an independent work in a suburban part of the community. To this new church they gave the euphonic name of Life Tabernacle. In the years which have elapsed since, this work has had a phenomenal growth, and recently a beautiful new Life Tabernacle has been built near the heart of the city, and has been dedicated by none other than Brother Branham. In the meantime, in the city of Ashland, Oregon, I became pastor of a church, which we had the pleasure of seeing grow into a thriving and prosperous assembly. It so happened that at the time of which we now write we were in the midst of a revival with evangelist J.E. Stiles, in which some fifty received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. At that time, 
we were singularly impressed that God would soon reveal to the church how soon we could not say a new ministry of power in which mighty signs and wonders and miracles would take place. In fact, in years previous God had shown us by the spirit of prophecy that this would happen. So it came to pass in the providence of God, as the Stiles meeting came to a close, that on the 8th of March, we received a letter from Brother Jack Moore which read as follows, Dear Brother Gordon, I know you will be surprised to hear from me here in Oakland, California, but this is what happened. We hid a Brother Branham of Jeffersonville, Indiana, a Baptist minister who has received the Holy Ghost, and has great success in praying for the sick on such a scale as I have never before seen. We hid a meeting in Shreveport, the like of which has never been before. So Brother Young Brown and myself came along with him out here to fill some engagements he had made. We haven't found buildings large enough to take care of the crowds. Last night was our first night here, and the building was packed out and all standing room was taken. We will be here through the 5th and then go to Sacramento for three nights. So we will be in this country for several days and I would surely like to see you and would like for you to see what this brother is doing. With deep regards, Jack Moore. We read the letter slowly several times with mingled emotions, and finally took it and read it to Brother Stiles. His own spirit witnessed with us on the matter and we both determined to make the trip down to Sacramento and observe the unusual ministry of this evangelist that my friend had written about. Within the next day or so Brother Jack Moore flew up by plane to Ashland to pay us a visit, and the following day we all went by automobile to Sacramento, a distance of about miles. When we arrived, we found the church where the meeting was to be held, though located out toward the edge of the city, was already filled with people. Certainly the service that we witnessed that night was different than any we had ever been in before. Never had we known of any preacher calling deaf mutes and blind people to pray for, and then to see those people delivered on the spot. The last one that was prayed for that night was a little cross-eyed child. I saw the mother and the girl sitting disconsolately at one side there were so many to pray for, and it seemed the evangelist would never get to them. Time came for the service to close, with many yet desiring prayer. The evangelist was preparing to leave and had reached the steps of the platform, when he happened to look back and see the child. Instantly his compassion went out to her, and he took her, put his hands over her eyes and prayed a brief prayer. When the child looked up, lo, her eyes had come perfectly straight. The following morning we had the pleasure of meeting Brother Branham. What we had heard and seen the night before, and the impressions that we had when we met him, convinced us that here was a man, who, though humble and unassuming, had reached out into God and received a ministry that was beyond any that we had witnessed before. Here was a simple faith that brought results and seemed on the order of that which we had long considered necessary to bring about the revival that we were sure God intended should come to pass before the coming of Christ. In meeting our brother we learned that Brother Moore had already spoken to Reverend Branham about me, and that he had looked forward to meeting me. Indeed Brother Moore, having witnessed the unusual power of the ministry of this evangelist, saw the advantage of the inspiration of such a ministry being made available to all God's people. For indeed when the angel had given Brother Branham charge, he straightly told him that his ministry was to be to all people. Because our associations had been in the larger full gospel circles, it had suggested itself to Brother Branham and Brother Moore, that perhaps I might be the one to introduce him to the ministers of these groups. Thus it was that we found Brother Branham immediately willing to consider our invitation for him to come north and hold some campaigns the following fall in Oregon and adjacent states.
We returned to Ashland, convinced that God was in our trip and that this was the ministry that would reach the masses. We began to look forward to the possibility of arranging several brief campaigns for Brother Branham in the region of the Northwest. It was our desire, however, to get into a few additional meetings with Brother Branham before the Northwest campaigns. Our church gave us permission to visit a forthcoming campaign at Tulsa, Oklahoma. The assent of the congregation was unanimous, but all were very solemn that morning as if they had a presentiment that we might not be their pastor much longer. In June, we left for Shreveport, Louisiana. Brother Moore was ready when we arrived and with several others we drove north to Tulsa. That evening we again had opportunity to observe the ministry of this man. The large church auditorium was packed to the doors and many wonderful things took place that night. There were so many to be prayed for that the service ran until two o'clock in the morning. Thus it had been for the past year. What a shame, we thought, that with millions of sick people, so few were really exercising mastery over demons and disease, and that this little brother had to pray for the sick until he was physically exhausted. Up till this time, few union full gospel campaigns had been undertaken. Doctrinal differences and other reasons had caused one group to be suspicious of the other. If all were to get the benefit of these great services, we saw it would be necessary for the campaigns to be organized on the inter-evangelical basis, where all the concerned would agree not to precipitate debate on controversial subjects, but would join together in a united effort to bring this message of deliverance to all the people. Could this be effected? We thought it could. Brother Branham was enthusiastic about the idea, for indeed the uniting of believers had been the burden of his heart from the time that the angel had visited him. Before we left Tulsa, definite plans were made for a series of meetings to be held in the West that fall. Two months later, while on a trip to the General Council at Grand Rapids, Michigan, we stopped over at Calgary, Canada, where Brother Branham was holding a seven-day meeting. We had opportunity to assist in the prayer line, and there had a close-up view of the ministry of our brother. In one instance, we watched as he talked to a man lying on a cot. At first there was no sign of an intelligent response from the man. Explanation then came from the wife standing by, that the man was not only dying of cancer, but was deaf and could not hear what was being said. Brother Branyam then said that it would be necessary for the man to receive his hearing so he could instruct him concerning the healing of his cancer. There was a moment of prayer. Suddenly the man could hear. Great large tears rolled down the cheeks of that man whose face all evening had been so expressionless and impassive. He listened with deep interest as he was told of his deliverance from cancer. Another case was the healing of a deaf-mute child. After prayer it was evident that the boy could hear. The startled expression on his face as he heard the sound made it clear to everyone that the deaf spirit had been cast out. The next night I saw the mother again, and happily she told us that already her boy had learned several words. Elsewhere in this volume is a newspaper account of the Calgary meeting. We left Calgary with some other friends who were traveling with us, and continued our trip east. A few days later we stopped at Oberlin, Ohio, home of Oberlin College, founded by Charles G. Finey. This great man of God lay buried in a cemetery plot near Oberlin, his death having taken place there some years ago, after a fruitful ministry rarely equaled in the history of evangelism. Finey would scarcely recognize Oberlin now. True, the beautiful campus buildings reflected material prosperity, but the gospel that Finey had so ardently proclaimed two generations ago had few advocates there now. 
the blighting scourge of modernism and the social gospel had taken over. There would be no joy in Oberlin, if Finney were to return and preach his dynamic sermons in the halls of that now ultra-modern university. We asked ourselves what was the matter. Why in the space of two generations had such a complete declension taken place? We then were reminded of the days of Joshua. Israel served God during Joshua's lifetime and also during the lifetime of those who outlived Joshua, and who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works that he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baalim. There it was. It was evident that faith in God cannot be transmitted from generation to generation without new manifestations of the power of God. The generation that followed Joshua still had their priests, but apparently these knew nothing of the power of God. The main result of their powerless ministry was that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. But then as now there will always be those, such as Gideon, who will not accept the devil's plausible explanation that the days of miracles are past. An angel appeared to him and said, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. But Gideon replied and said, If the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Gideon was not like the religionist of our day, who is perfectly satisfied with the non-miraculous gospel and cleverly explains the absence of miracles in his ministry by saying that the days of miracles are past, and that it is now the will of God for Christians to be oppressed by sickness. Gideon refused to fool himself. He faced the facts. If God be with us, where were the miracles, he wanted to know. Notice that the angel did not say, Gideon, you are excited? The days of miracles are past. He honored Gideon's faith by performing a miracle right there. As he touched the sacrifice that Gideon had prepared, there rose up fire out of the rock, and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Indeed the angel of the Lord told Gideon to go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? When the Spirit of God came on this man of faith he became a different man, and all Israel was soon to witness a mighty deliverance wrought through the power of the supernatural. It is interesting to notice that though Gideon believed that if God were really in their midst, then the days of miracles had not passed, but he was quite startled when the angel commissioned him to go forth as Israel's leader. He could hardly see that this would be a wise choice. Not only was his family poor, but he was the least in his father's house. Nevertheless, that the first shall be last and the last first seems often to be God's way. After God blessed Gideon with victory he still remained humble and refused to accept the offer to be ruler over Israel. He told the people, the Lord shall rule over you. He restored harmony among his jealous brethren, and during many years that followed there was peace and quiet in the land. A parallel to the story of Gideon is apparent in the life of William Branham. Both men were born in very poor families, and neither had any ambition to become great. Each received a visitation and commission from the angel of the Lord. Each believed that if God were with his people then the days of miracles could not have ended. Both of these men received a special endowment of the Spirit. Both disdained becoming a ruler over God's heritage, and both labored to bring harmony among God's people. With a very small army God gave Gideon victory over a host of the enemy. With no backing of human organization and having few natural qualifications, 
William Brownham obeyed the call to minister the gift that God gave him, and multitudes flocked to hear him, many being delivered from the enemy's afflictions. Gideon suffered from the opposition of jealous brethren and the carnally minded. Such has also been the case with William Brownham. Each of these men responded to those who spoke against them with forbearance and patience, and God vindicated both in his own time. A paralleling conditions existing in Gideon's day and our day is also apparent. A generation ago the full gospel movement sprang into existence, attended by many signs and wonders. But now a new generation has arisen, and many of the young people, though they have heard of the works done in a previous day, have never themselves witnessed a miracle. In many churches the tendency has been to seek substitutes for the power of God and to gravitate to a purely human level of worship. On our return to Oregon it was impressed upon us with great force that the manifestation of the power of God was the only answer to the question, how can we reach this generation with the message of the gospel in the brief time that remains before the coming of Christ?